Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 528th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Edward Cohen, professor of history at Grinnell College, who is going to talk to us about the high title of a communist, post-war party discipline, and the values of the Soviet regime. Joining us in the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. So to begin with, we would like to welcome to our show, Dr. Edward Cohen. How are you doing, doctor? Great. How are you? Do you mind if we call you Edward? Not at all. Okay. And this is the first segment of our show, which we refer to as Fadruk Danarin. And our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, Ed, can you start us off with some of the basic information of what the Communist Party looked like during the Soviet era, I know it's probably just a happy-go-lucky kind of folks. They were just joyous people to be around. That's sarcasm, Absolutely. of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll say, I looked at the Communist Party between the end of World War II and, um, and the end of Nikita Khrushchev's rule of the Soviet Union in 1964. So, uh, you know, what the Communist Party was like could vary a lot over time. Where early in the party's history, they really, really emphasized worker identity, since, of course, they're a Marxist political party. And that rhetoric is still there. In the period I look at, it's probably between 3 and 5% of the total population of the country, probably like 10% of the adult men in the country. And it's people who, you know, roughly speaking, are part of the country's political elite. You know, if you wanted to be in politics, you'd be in the Communist Party. If you wanted to run your factory or to really progress in your career, you'd be part of the Communist Party. And so it's evolving at this time to become a little more white-collar rather than blue-collar worker. The percentage of peasants is going down somewhat. But I think the key thing overall is that it is kind of the country's... It's, it, it's not the political elite in the terms of the very top, but again, it's the people who are most influential in politics, most influential in their careers, and sort of just, you know, most influential in the country in general. All right, let's take a step back. Um, I love the premise that you just laid down because it definitely has sort of a, a concrete basis that when I'm a history teacher and my colleagues are also history teachers as well, some on the show, some are not, of how we view the communist party. However, when we're starting out with the Communist Party in the very beginning of, let's say, with the far fall of Nicholas in 1917, they always referred to themselves as the Bolshevik Party. And it was referred to the Bolsheviks for an incredibly long time. And yet it was a term that we Americans rarely have ever used. We despised them from the very beginning as far as the government was concerned and our capitalistic uh, democratic ideas. When this is going on from your time period, from 45 to 64, do they still kind of refer to, the, refer to themselves as Bolsheviks, or have they outgrown that kind of terminology? They'll use the term a fair amount, kind of in an unofficial way. Because when they first took power in 1917, as you said, that was what they went by. That was their main name for themselves. But they try to broaden that by the early 20s and just call it the, you know, the All-Union Communist Party, 
And, and so unofficially, they'll refer to themselves as Bolsheviks, referring to the revolutionary past. The official name will be communists, though. Okay, because it, this is my interpretation, and please change, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, back to what you were saying with the early beginnings, Nikol, uh, Lenin and Trotsky very much, the Bolshevism was the part of their beliefs. It's kind of what connected them to Marxism. I never really viewed Stalin as a Bolshevik. I, and, of course, he and his own control changes the parties in totally different manner and fashion and unimaginable uh, practices. Um, so what you're saying is as the Soviet Union gets more established, uh, Bolshevism isn't pushed aside, but it's, it's just a reference point. Yeah, they would still claim to be Bolshevik. Stalin would probably be a little offended to be told that you don't consider him one. Then again, he'd be offended by a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, and it, luckily he's not in power anymore. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. One way to look at it is, again, you know, they came to power as a workers' party. And they really emphasized workers' status for a while. And for a long time, the best way to rise within the, to join the party and to sort of emphasize your status as a good Bolshevik or a good communist was to point to your roots as a proletarian or a worker. That's true in the 20s. It's true in the 30s. There's a lot of consolidation that takes place. You know, they start building a bureaucracy. They start, there starts to be a challenge of, you know, they, you know, early on, they're afraid of the people who had been engineers or factory owners. They start recruiting their own people, their own people with worker roots, to leadership positions, then it starts to become a little less, a little more ambiguous who's a worker, who's a white-collar worker, and so forth. So part of the story my book covers is the Great Purges at the end of the 30s are one big turning point. World War II is another, where obviously a lot of citizens of the Soviet Union die. And it's this huge, Stalin would call it a testing ground for socialism. And so from World War II onward, there's a way in which one of the best ways early on to get into the Communist Party in like 1947 is to say, I was a veteran and I fought for the USSR rather than, you know, I was from a big labor background and my parents were workers. And that becomes associated with the regime eventually kind of becoming more nationalist, more bureaucratic. And, you know, it... It still, it still says it's revolutionary. It's still trying to change society. But it's not like the members are all revolutionary activists in the 40s and 50s in the way they could claim to be back in the 20s and into the 30s. My last question, we had a minute left, and then I'll let my colleagues go a little more current questions. But I kind of was taught when I took some grad classes that one of the bridges between the Bolshevism and the nationalistic communism that others in Stalin's grouping wanted to become was the constructivist art or the art especially that Stalin was pushing. That yes, we had a workers Bolshevik beginning, but we are going to be the modern giants of the future. And constructivism was one of the tools that they would use. Is that true? I think there's something to that. I'd say the biggest thing is World War II and the fear of World War II pushed them to be more nationalistic. So they start emphasizing propaganda that they think will rally their population, which is often about fighting the Germans or your Russian past 
rather than about, you know, about proletarian class status or, or social class. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI and KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today is Dr. Edward Cohn, professor of history at Grinnell College, and we're talking about his book, the High Title of a Communist, Post-War P- Party D- Discipline, and the Values of the Soviet Regime. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Bernard and Rick Sweet. Rick, why don't you start us off? Thanks, John. Ed uh, did a little study uh, of the Soviet regime when I was in college, and and uh, I agree with you, the, the impact of World War II on... Uh, the uh, Soviet psyche, if you were, uh, it, it's almost like the constant complaint that the uh, Russians suffered while the Allies were were fighting Germany and waiting and waiting while Russians were dying and dying. And I, I just, in, in my studies, and I actually ended any comprehensive study about the 1970s, but it struck me that uh, there was a, a resentment uh, of uh, the European countries as well as the West, and that helped uh, foster this ultra-nationalism that is uh, actually going on even today. Uh, do you agree, or, or can you correct me in my, uh, my assumption? I think what I'd say here is that, you know, it's really hard to underestimate the impact of World War II on the Soviet Union and Russia. You know, something like 14% of the population died in World War II, which, if you think of how big an impact, you know, World War II had on America, even though less than 1% of the population died, you can get a sense of just how big the impact on the psyche, on the culture, on the politics and society of the Soviet Union would be. So I'd say in the USSR, it becomes almost a new founding myth. And it's hard to generalize with one, one clear-cut answer of, yes, it led to ultranationalism. It became, though, I think, a part of the culture that everyone would refer to in politics. You know, it became a big source of pride. Stalin claimed that World War II proved the Soviet system and all its decisions with the collectivization and industrialization in the 30s had worked, and that was a great victory. Um, I think you do, to get back to your question, though, you know, so for a long time, this would be a source of pride. In 2005, with uh, what would be the 60th anniversary of the war, there'd be massive parades 
in Moscow, just to emphasize just the, the Russian and Soviet contribution. So that became a basic part of, um, of, of the politics of the Soviet Union. That does mean in the present day, when obviously there's the war going on in Ukraine, that there's an incentive to use rhetoric connected to the war to attack Ukraine. And all of these countries have messy histories. There are things you can point to among Ukrainian nationalists during the war that were sort of pro-German. But the overwhelming story isn't one of, of it isn't one where this Russian myth particularly helps them, except that it does let them point to something that a lot of Russians could take pride in and try to cast Ukraine on the other side of it and to really emphasize sort of, um, you know, some pretty nasty politics. So I think I'd say I don't think this myth wed to the re- shift to the extreme right eventually. I think other factors probably did that. But when you get that shift to the extreme right, it's really useful to have that mythology they can refer to. Okay. Brett. So the subtitle of your book is Post-War Party Discipline and Values of the Soviet Regime. What were their highest values? There are a bunch of things that are pretty important. I think I alluded to earlier, originally, you know, being a good worker would be important, being a revolutionary activist. They tend, in the late Stalin years, since, of course, Stalin is in charge from the late 20s through the 30s, through World War II, and then after the war, in, in the early part of the book I cover, they tend to emphasize tight discipline and not initiative, but sort of doing what the regime wants you to do and sort of just a type of just very, very hierarchical control by the regime. One of the things I get at is that there's a change in how the Soviet Union works, partly shaped by the transition from Stalin to Khrushchev, but partly shaped by just the impact of the war, where early on, they're more repressive, they're more likely to crack down on people they see as politically dangerous, that becomes less common. And so they move from being repressive to intrusive. And they start to care more about your family life. And if you drink too much, and if you raise your kids in a good and Soviet way, so the, so, the, so the party changes from being mostly concerned about ideology and politics when it's looking at its members to being much more concerned about, you know, often intrusive investigations into whether you're um, doing your duty to your family and whether you're drinking too much and things like that. Uh, you, the Russians really, uh, the communists really cared if, if you drank too much in, in Soviet history? We're talking the Russians, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a complicated question, because on some levels, no. <laughs> no like 98% hand, levels, no. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah. it could be really embarrassing to the party if, you know, a prominent member was drunk on the street yeah. or something like that. Luckily for them, Yeltsin wasn't around at the time. But anyway, exactly. uh, back to what we're wasn't talking. around to get drunk and fall asleep <laughs> in public. And... <laughs> that's, that's in their future. Uh, back to the core of communism, which kind of um, Brett was asking before. Um, you're talking about World War II and the aftermath for sure, because Russia dealt with the Germans like nobody else on the planet. Um, of course, Stalin, who was a paranoid, hideous creature in the first place, becomes even more afterwards. Uh, and of course, the United States having the atomic bomb and the Russians not was a 
big driving factor with this. How did this kind of belief pers- or affect their drive to create a, a, an atomic bomb? I mean, I think they knew they were in a life and death struggle with the West. And so you didn't need to be paranoid to know that their political their political future depended on developing nuclear weapons. So I think, um, you know, obviously Stalin did some really nasty things after the war and had paranoid conspiracies, theories about, you know, Jewish doctors undermining him. I actually think that he probably would have pursued the bomb just as much even without those, though. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. Uh, Rick? Yeah, Ed, I uh, was interested in, in your book because I'm, I'm trying to figure out Putin, and he seems to be... <laughs> Uh, he seems to be following some of the some of the uh, the steps of of uh, repression and, and intrusion, but not so much for party discipline and and uh, uh, what have you. What 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 changed? What changed after 1964? What were the the values that the Communist Party was trying to project? Part of the picture is because Stalin's in charge, and again, in the late 40s into the 50s. And it's a, for lack of a better word, it's not a very dynamic time in the Soviet Union. They've been focused on reconstruction. As I mentioned, they are really trying to establish firm top-down control. And Stalin dies. And I think Khrushchev, he legitimately feels frustrated that this ideological enthusiasm of the party that existed before the war is now gone. Okay. So he tries various experiments to try to get the party more enthusiastic. And long story short, they don't really work. Uh, one example yeah. would be, uh, you know, we talked about the party getting more involved in the people's family lives. Khrushchev wants people to get mad if they see someone who... He's abandoning their family and letting down the next generation. Sometimes you get those complaints about communists, but they're not from sort of idealistic citizens who are concerned about their country's future in an ideological way. He's trying to push the party to be more ideologically activist, and the activism isn't there. So after 64, some of his initiatives continue, but without... I think they realize they're not going to turn the population into hardcore communist activists. They're not going to be able to mobilize people to go out and fight for communism. And, you know, it varies over those decades. Um, I think, you know, the country isn't always as stagnant as we assume in the years from 64 onward. But it's, again, becomes less ideological and that, I think, shapes the sort of milieu in which um, Putin, of course, um, starts to run. Yeah. We had the KGB in the last years of the Soviet Union. Uh, Brett. So you talk about this idea of they don't want prominent communists to embarrass the party. When people were weighing whether or not to join uh, the party officially to become official members, was it... Um, usually a decision made out of dedication to ideals, or was it usually more pragmatic? You gave the example of uh, people running factories and that sort of thing. 
it's more pragmatic and careerist, I'd say. Something that, again, upsets Khrushchev. Like, they'd love it if people were dedicated to communism. A lot of people just know that if you want to succeed in your career, you'd better be a communist. Okay. Um, let's talk about some individuals, of course. Uh, after Stalin dies and, and you're saying Khrushchev's taken over, they go through their turbulent, turbulent times. And one person that was always by Stalin's right side, side and if, feel free to correct me if I pronounce his, mispronounce his name, Lorente Barrier. And, of course, um, mm -hmm. he. what was his take? I mean, I've often heard that he was just Stalin's uh, right-hand uh, killing machine, but there's others that said that, you know, he had was more involved than what we know. What's your take on him, if I may ask? Beria, he runs the secret police for a bunch of the period after the Great Purges. And I'll add, he's a really nasty guy. He's, like, involved in political violence to a higher degree than a lot of other people. He is credibly accused of basically being a rapist and driving around Moscow and finding the women he wanted brought back to his dacha. So he is a really nasty figure. And what's interesting about him is when Stalin dies, again, Beery has been running the secret police. He's one of the front runners to become the new leader. And partly that terrifies a lot of people, both because I think any one person seen as a front runner would be looked on with terror by, you know, the Molotovs and Khrushchevs and Koganoviches and so forth. But also, he's a pretty nasty sort. He actually then announces a lot of reforms. I think partly because he's a smart guy who knows the country needs to reform. And partly because he knows that he needs to soften his image. And it doesn't work, long story short. You know, he gets arrested and accused of a lot of crimes of violating socialist legality is one term for it. Um, and it's true that he was one of the nastier figures in the late Stalin years. Um, of course, the people accusing him of that weren't exactly innocent either. No. Rick? Ed, uh, you mentioned uh, in the opening segment that uh, approximately, I don't know, 3 to 5% of, of the adult population was uh, party members. Uh, and you're uh, talking, I, I think Brett was getting to, you know, why does, why does somebody want to go to the party? And you mentioned it was to primarily um, enhance their career progression, if you will. At what point did the, the, the myths and the fables of the great revolution that I was a revolutionary and and, uh, uh, you know, I, I suffered for the party. When did that value subside? And uh, uh, was it during this period of time, 45 to 64? I mean, officially, of course, they'll still refer to those myths. I'll also say from the 20s onward, they start to get scared that people are joining the party out of careerism rather than oh, because okay. they believe in it. But I do think World War II is pretty important here. Probably gets gives a new myth that, you know, in 1949, you can say I was a great communist who helped us beat the fascist threat. And you can even almost say that World War II is a new founding myth for the country like the revolution. And so they'll still pay homage to 1917, 
but they can really point to World War II or the Great Patriotic War, as they call it, as this other big heroic thing they participated in um, as a way to sort of give legitimacy and some heft to the mythology around the party. Good, Brett. So digging deeper with that, um, because the Great Patriotic War was so important to their founding mythology, did that mean that if you had careers in certain areas, you were more likely to uh, be able to hold sway in communist uh, party meetings, for example, if you worked in uh, the defense industry? To some degree, being from the defense industry might help you. I'll also say that so many Russians, so many people in the Soviet Union were in the army in World War II that, you know, veterans spread out to every part of life. And, you know, um, like probably the biggest places where communists would be active would be in big factories or on collective farms. But really, if you're an actor and you want to rise up, it might help you to join the actors union and become a, a bigger star if you were a communist. It's everywhere. Okay. Um, in our to ask a question here, and then we'll give you the final question of the um, show. Uh, so, how do you think um, this period of Russia from forty-five to uh, we'll even go as far as eighty-nine impacts Russia today? I mean, in lots of big ways. I mean, um, honestly, one of the bigger parts, of course, is that the collapse of the Soviet Union ended up being a pretty traumatic event for a lot of people. So it's really unfortunate that people remember all the economic pain from the late 80s into the 90s as, as a really big deal, because it was a big deal. Um, but that has affected a lot of attitudes toward democracy and capitalism in the West ever since. Um, and then, you know, I think there are a lot of ways in which the legacy of violence from the Stalin period, you know, especially before the war, but including the post-war problems, that's something that was never fully reckoned with by the country. You know, I think every country has its unfinished business that there's bad stuff that happened in the past that it's useful to try to confront. That's one case of where the country never fully did confront that. Okay. Um, Rick, why do you consider this topic to be relevant to today's world? Well, as a student of uh, Soviet Union and Russia, uh, I just see parallels uh, between uh, the history, particularly this period, uh, Stalin up through uh, Khrushchev, with what's going on now. The flavor is different, but I think the traditions, uh, this almost is ingrained in the in the Russian slash Soviet psyche. So I think it's important. Brett. Well, to kind of go off of what Rick was saying, to understand or to try and understand Putin, you have to understand the environment that he grows up in and that leads to him. And this is a critical part of that. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 528th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show was written and performed by Mark Zapzapdol, is titled Kayla's Theme. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Edward Cohen, professor of history at Grinnell College, who talked to us uh, about his book, The High Title of Communist. Post-War Party Discipline and the Values of the Soviet Regime. The history bus for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on station KALA, St. Ambrose University. Uh, we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.